This is William and Lonsdale, a podcast about the legal ecosystem and the fascinating people that make it tick. Today, your host, Michael Green, speaks with his honour, Justice Paul Coughlin, AO. Paul is a wealth of knowledge and experience, and he shares with us his approach to prosecuting, to witnesses and juries, and his experience making case-cracking deals in the early days of the gangland murder trials. As a Supreme Court Justice, Paul would often take the time to mentor barristers, letting them know what they had done right and perhaps where they could improve. He did this because he himself had learnt so much from members of the bench who had taken the time to mentor him. Judges were terrific in those days. If they saw that you're really trying at your work, they'd talk to you and say, you could improve by doing this. You know, I had a case one day and Joe O'Shea called me and the bloke got acquitted and Joe called me and we were on circuit down at Colac and he called me into his room at the hotel and we are having a beer and he said, oh, well, you stuffed that up, didn't you? <laughs> that was encouraging. No, no, but then, because he's going, God, the, you know the knife? I said, yes, I was very careful with the knife. He said, yeah, that's the problem. And he said, you should have had that in the hand of every witness and had a way to get around and so whereas you were, you know, being very prissy about how we'd all be careful of the knife, you know, you've got exhibits, make sure you use them properly. Welcome to Lies in the Law. Our guest this morning is former Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria, Paul Coughlin. Good morning, Paul. Thanks, Michael. Paul, I'd like to start by looking at a couple of issues in the criminal justice system, which I think are interesting, but more importantly, they're important. And the first one is the length of trials. I think it's been a bugbear of yours, how long trials have become. In your working life of 50 plus years, the length of trials must have tripled, quadrupled or even more. And we all know, of course, that justice delayed is justice denied. Why has it come about? Have you got your overview of the system? Can you give us an explanation for why trials are now so long? I think uh, there are a lot of cases in relation to which there's just more evidence and different kinds of evidence with issues such as DNA and other type technical material, you do get more extensive cross-examination about those sorts of issues. Because if you've got a client whose DNA's been found at the scene, you mightn't think you've got much show. So you've got to mount as big attack as you can on the DNA. The attacks are often very lengthy and not necessarily very successful. So they cause delay. I think there are more witnesses called in uh, cases than once were called, although we have got rid of a lot of the very minor witnesses. And when I started off uh, in a murder case, the first thing you did was prove the identity of the deceased. So somebody came along and said, oh, this was my brother and I went to the morgue and I saw the body and it's him. As a matter of common sense, we've dispensed with all that. Nobody nobody thinks there's any issues of those kinds and there simply aren't. I think people probably cross-examine longer. Again, not necessarily to particularly good effect either. You know, the, the proper art of cross-examination is knowing the questions not to ask not asking every question under the sun. But we've worked on it and we're continuing to work on it. We're getting rid of the unnecessary things. I think Supreme Court trials are probably more disciplined these days than they were once upon a time. The county court has difficulties. I mean, in, in all sorts of sex cases, because the consequences are so great for the for the people involved. Barristers are reluctant to not take any possible point that they they can. We probably have more preliminary argument and more rulings by judges and so on than we we did, but the there seems to be no longer anything like a simple three or four day trial. They did exist, they don't anymore. Does it make it a fairer system to all parties involved? Not necessarily. You want trials, only one thing you want in trials, you want them to be fair. And that doesn't mean they, fairness doesn't mean long. Fairness means properly conducted and fairly conducted. Well, that brings me to my next question, which is criminal trials by judge alone. 
we don't have them in Victoria, they are in other parts of Australia, would there be a benefit in having trials by judge alone, criminal trials by judge alone? We did have them in Victoria for a while during the pandemic, but they weren't very popular. I mean, in general, I I was opposed to trial by judge alone, but that might be no more than a function of the amount of time I've spent in the law. But I was perfectly happy during the pandemic to say, look, we've just got to find ways of getting people a, a trial. If, if, if having trial by judge alone can speed the process up, we should have it. Uh, but part of the problem is, I think, that it doesn't necessarily speed things up. Judges are very careful. Judges have to write, you know, the, the judgment that needs to be written in a judge alone trial is not, I've listened to the evidence and I find the accused guilty or not guilty. You've got to go through every minute bit of the evidence and all the rulings and so on. So, And I think, not a thing that worried me much, I don't think judges like that prospect. One of the great things about doing being a criminal judge is you don't have to decide the case. You know, the jury decide the case and a lot of judges think that's a very a very good thing. So the only written thing you have to do in a criminal trial is any ruling that you make, you've got to provide a proper written ruling. You've got to prepare and deliver your charge, but you don't have to write any judgment. So uh, you might have a trial that goes for three or four weeks, but it gets to the end of it and you're at the end of it. So that in that way... The pressure that's put on the judges is not popular. Did you ever do a civil trial where you had to write a judgment? Early, oh, early I, I, did, I did civil cases yeah. in which I had to write write judgments. So I, that never worried me much. And when I was on the Court of Appeal, I had to write uh, judgments. I still write everything by hand, so I'm not a quick producer of the product. But but I think writing things out means they're shorter. I think the dictating machine's not necessarily the best device. Paul, let's go back to the start. Um, surprisingly, you started out with the intention of being a doctor and went to Melbourne University Medical School. Yeah, I did. Whether whether I had thought much about whether I would be a doctor or not, I'm not sure. But I think I, I'd gone to CBC North Melbourne. I think we'd probably not had many people who'd gone and done med. And it was thought to be very prestigious. And if your marks were good enough and you'd get into med, people would say, well, you should do med. I mean, I think as it turns out, and it's, it, it's absolutely clear, I should have started off in law in the first place. I think that's where my, my real talents always were. I just didn't, I, I didn't really take to it and I wasn't very good at the discipline of, you know, study which wasn't the sort of organised study we'd had at school. Not exactly learning by rote, but pretty close to it. And then when you had to be a self-starter, I wasn't too good at that at the beginning. So I failed first year and what now? By then my brother Michael was doing uh, law and so I thought I'd have a go at law and then that's that's what happened. Did you enjoy your time at uni, doing oh, studying well, law? Oh, well, all of it. I enjoyed all my time at the university. Of the sort of people who don't, you know, do much study and so on, I did go to lectures, except for the ones very early in the morning when I didn't get there, but I'd go to lectures, so at least you knew a bit about what the the lecturer thought about and the lecturer set the exam, so you're a bit in front. But I'd be pretty sure that if you got hold of my marks, there'd be a lot of marks that were between... 50 and 55. <laughs> so you had the judgment to know exactly how much work to do to get a pass. Oh, that's how it turned out, yeah. Because yeah. the thing about that time was getting good marks didn't matter because no. everybody got a job. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there were plenty of jobs. It was a bit of a challenge to get articles. Even, even though it was a bit of a challenge, everyone got articles, you know, because Firms felt the responsibility of of taking people on and and giving people the opportunity to do their articles. You know, it wasn't a they weren't the most expensive employees you could have. I think I started off at sixteen dollars a week. I think and then that went up to twenty after six months. Well, isn't that interesting? Because I'm a couple of years behind you, and I started at eighteen dollars and finished at twenty two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> there you are, uh, the same market. Exactly. Yeah. So. After your articles, you 
get a job in the Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office. Yeah. What was the Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office and why did you go there? Well, um, the Commonwealth had, a, had the Crown Solicitor's Office, which was in Canberra, and then in each of the states they had a Deputy Crown Solicitor. My brother Michael worked there and he'd been working there doing crime and he'd, he'd been involved in the, a big case about the Forge Five Pound Nuts as it was uh, then, and he'd thoroughly enjoyed himself. And I thought, oh, that sounds pretty good. I mean, you didn't necessarily have to finish up in prosecutions. There was, you know, there were a range of other sections. There was a common law section and so on, a prosecution section, a property section and so on. But I went there and eventually I finished up in, in prosecutions. Now, that office, the Crown Solicitor's Office, yeah. no longer exists. No, that's all been absorbed into the... Well, it's it, it's absorbed into two things. It's the Australian uh, Solicitor's... Government, uh, government The Australian Government Solicitor's Office and the DPP. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. So it's the same in Victoria. Yeah, the criminal law was only done as a branch of the Crown Solicitor's Office, the criminal law branch, but that's gone off and become the DPP and in the same way. But it's now the Australian government's listed as the civil stuff and the DPP does the crime. But now government legal work goes out to the profession in a way that it never did in in our day, we did it all. We did nothing went out to the profession. We briefed a lot, but nothing went out to the profession for solicitors to act for the government then. But that's changed quite dramatically now, both in the state and Commonwealth. Paul, just to digress for a moment, as a young lawyer, and I think newly married with a young family, you dipped your toe into politics and became the mayor of the city of Fitzroy. What uh, led to this? Well, when we first went to North Fitzroy, um, and we met the other sort of young couples who were around. There were two things. There was a Fitzroy Residents Association, which was interested in the preservation of houses and, and all those sorts of things, and the local ALP, which met in the Band Rotunda in the Edinburgh Gardens. We didn't like much what was being done on the council about how, quite according to Hoyle, it was all run. And... Uh, my friend Barry Pullen, who later became uh, minister in uh, various governments in Victoria, rang me up one day and said, I suppose you'll be opposing Alf James, you know, for pre-selection for the council. And I said, oh, what do you think I'm mad? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, well, do you agree with all the things they're doing? I said, well, you know, I most certainly do not. And he said, well, you better put your candidature where your mouth is and hung up. So... Sounds that, like he knew you well. Yeah, that got me going. I ran twice, uh, so I was on the council between uh, roughly 1972 and 1978. At the time of my second campaign, Brian Howe was my campaign manager and he went on to become Deputy Prime Minister. I didn't ever, and Barry went on and went into state politics, I, I just wasn't interested in taking it further. I was interested in having a, you know, having a proper profession, but I was... I was only 30 when I was the mayor, which for mayors in those days was pretty young. And we made a lot of changes about things, but what became most important to us, I think, at the end really was our fight with the Housing Commission. We were opposed to high-rise housing. They had built, you know, the, all the blocks in, uh, in, in South Fitzroy, you know, in Gertrude Street, Brunswick Street, Napier Street, that whole block. Uh, they'd filled that up with uh, high rise. And we, you know, had looked at what was happening overseas, in England in particular, and it didn't seem that high rise housing was a successful way of dealing with families. And we opposed it. And eventually, I think, over Brooks Crescent in North Fitzroy, we eventually stopped it. We stopped high rise development in Victoria by the Housing Commission. And you didn't necessarily think much of it at the time, but it was pretty important. Back to the law. At the time that you finish your term as Mayor of the City of Fitzroy, you also leave the Deputy Crown Solicitor's Office and come to the bar. Why was that? Why did you decide you wanted I to think be a barrister? That, I think that was really that I thought I was more an advocate than anything else. If I'd had a regret or have a regret, and it'd only be a very minor one, 
it is that I didn't go to the bar from the very beginning. And life at the bar, perhaps a little before me, but still round about my time when you were beginning, was very easy. You know, you could pick up a brief or going to the magistrate's court, it wasn't unusual to pick up a couple of briefs. Six o'clock the night before or something? Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Well, I read with Freddie James and Freddie always said, you know, you mustn't leave chambers in the evening before half past five because you never know what might come in. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. Uh, even if you've got a brief, you might get another one. So, yeah, yeah so I, I did that and... That was just sort of knock around work in the, the magistrate's court, but it was great fun. Tell mm. us a bit about Fred James and uh, yeah. his modus operandi. Well, Freddie was, he was quite a remarkable man in, in many ways because he would have been regarded by his peers as one of the outstanding advocates at our bar, particularly criminal advocates. But that is now Freddie saw it. He was a very, very nervous person and worried, you know, a great deal about his his work. It was not uncommon for him to come into work and, you know, be about to go off to court and go into the toilet and throw up as the start to the day. But he was a quite remarkable user of language. He had a terrific use of language, which people, judges in particular, liked. And he had a nice touch. So appearing in front of Paul Mullally one day, and in those days, it was not uncommon for particularly at the end of the month, so the last Friday in the month, a judge might be hearing 10 pleas at having his list for the day with the reasonable expectation you'd all be finished before lunch anyway, but that's because pleas and what, that's another, people just said less. So Freddie's last and he's appearing for a bit of an old lag and he stands up and says, well, the first thing I'd like to say, Your Honour, is we won't be calling any evidence because my client's not prepared to suborn anyone to commit perjury. <laughs> <laughs> and the ace thought it was terrific and he got a really good go. Or one day a period, there was a notorious magistrate who sat, he sat somewhere down on, on Beach Road. He was ferocious and... Freddie came in and said, well, the first thing your worship would have to say about this case, it's the worst case you've ever seen. Oh, no, hang on, Mr James, hang on. Now, I don't think I'd say that. So, so instead of him getting to say this is the worst case I've ever seen, you've talked him out of it in advance. So listen to all barristers is know your tribunal. Now that, that was, I think there was no reader's course when you started. At no the readers. You had to, there was a compulsory two or three lectures including one given by Jay Mackay-Young, who either was just the Chief Justice or was about to become the Chief Justice. And his view of the world was that magistrates' courts were no place for barristers, which for most of the young blokes in the room (laughs) meant we didn't have a practice. But there was that. So that was a sort of, and then that was generally an ethics sort of lecture. And uh, there were another couple of lectures, but not much. And I don't know that there was anything that could happen to you if you didn't go to them. How did you learn your craft, your trade, your profession of being a barrister? If there were there was no course, I'm not sure those things can be taught anyway. But I think observing other people's the the biggest thing, and talking to to people about your cases and so on. I had the great advantage when I worked for the Commonwealth. The Magistrates' Court had two registers. There was a register that had all the state cases in it and a register that had, it's just a great big book, that had the uh, Commonwealth cases in it. So if you're working for the Commonwealth, you usually always got on last because they'd dispense of the work in the state register, get rid of that, and then they'd bring you on. So you got to see, you got to see what happened in a courtroom. And some terrific solicitor advocates and, and barristers and some, but you got to see the Frank Galbally's of the world. And Ray Lu- Dunn. Ray Dunn, Lou Legrand, Murray Goldberg. What did they try and do? I don't think you ever saw any of them come in and have an argument with anyone. They came in to charm people, that they were always um, very polite, very brief, very to the point, and most of the time got what they wanted. So that was a... A lesson I don't think these days, because of the way we run it all, you quite get the chance to to sit there and see what happens. I used to go to the city court, which was you know, where everyone who'd been arrested overnight came through in the city court. And 
probably the majority of people were remands or bails or whatever, but there are a lot of cases they just got rid of on the spot. So you got to see those and there's lots of people who'd come in. So you got to see the character, you know, Billy Cuthill when he was the chief magistrate and so on, and a number of other chief magistrates. And so who were some of the people you worked with and, and what did you learn from them? You've mentioned people like Jerry Fitzgerald and Fred James who you read with. What? One of the things you said was know your, know your tribunal. What else did you learn from those people? I suppose the main thing was that different people do it differently, but it can still be all right. There's no one size fits all. See, what had happened was Freddie had been very close to the prosecutors. So, you know, Joe Dixon and uh, Don McLeod and Colin Hollisby were very close friends of Fred's and we'd go up and have a beer together at the end of the day. We'd go up to the Metropolitan every night. Then you get, you get to know people that way and then you get a brief of somebody's junior in something and they have a look at you and like the way you do your work and that, that passes you on to, to others. People have said of Jerry Fitzgerald, you know, he, he was a terrible barrister because he was boring. Well, he was boring, Jerry, but he was the most thorough person you could ever come across. And I say, but what you need to know is if you look in the results book, he was an amazingly successful barrister. He was the sort of man Freddie said one day, was Freddie was appearing for a woman who'd been charged with stealing a whole lot of money and and Jerry cross-examined her for a, a day and a half and it, he got to a point where he said, Madam, where is the money? <laughs> and she said, somewhere where you'll never find it. <laughs> <laughs> which is which is a pretty remarkable answer to get. He didn't stop. He kept, you know, most of us were just boom, sat down as quick as we could. Jerry kept going. And I did the silver gun rapist with Jerry. And as I said, Jerry had these charts. He was tra- he trained as an accountant, Jerry, as well. So he was very meticulous. But he, he taught the value of thoroughness, Jerry. If, if you know it all, there's a whole lot of stuff I'll, I'll answer itself. And so... The learning process was really through being involved with experienced barristers, good barristers, seeing what people did and then – but figuring out your own style because not one size fit at all. I I worry about, you know, some of the teaching techniques a little bit in that if you use a video for the purpose of producing a particular kind of style, I don't like that. But if you you do it so that barristers can look at themselves – and work out mostly the things you shouldn't do and get it as simple as you possibly can. Lives in the Law is proudly sponsored by City Maps Illustrated. Their recent publication, The Melbourne Map, is a celebration of our wonderful city. This stunning, hand-drawn illustration, which took more than three years to create, is available as an art print, jigsaw puzzle and calendar. The perfect acquisition for your home, office or corporate gifting. Your career prior to going onto the bench was mainly as a prosecutor. Is there a different approach as a prosecutor from being defence counsel? Yeah, it's quite. Well, the first thing, and and it, it, it it's a bit simplistic, I suppose. But if you're a defence counsel, you can cheat a little bit. And I don't mean cheating as really. Che- I mean it's push it as close to the edge as you you possibly can. But when you're a prosecutor, you're not allowed to cheat at all. No. You know, and you've got to make sure you, you get it all so that it's, it's all going to stand up. And it is a bit about the art of the possible. But, it, but I think it, a lot of it's about preparing it. You know, you, you've just, you have to prepare the stuff. I mean, there's an old-fashioned style around the bar. There's not much of it left now, but of people who would barely read the brief and just swan into court and uh, give it a fly. And they didn't always fail. I mean, they had some success. I mean, some cases are just like that, that they're doomed to failure and you, or, or then people doing prosecutions and saying, well, it doesn't matter. Well, it all does matter. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's our system. Yeah. It's the only system we've yeah. got. Yeah. You've used the phrase, and I've heard it used by other people, about part of what you're doing or what you're doing is closing as many doors as you can. Yeah. What does that mean? 
Well, I would prepare the case, you know, as much as you possibly could. And Jim Morrissey, I think, said in much more detail than had ever been done in the past. I changed the way that cases were prosecuted a bit because of that. But part of that is that if you sit there and you think about, well, what's the defence? And you don't always know what the defence is, but most reasonably experienced barristers can work out this is the way this case will unfold. And think, well, what are we going to say about that? What evidence have we got that covers those points? And you haven't got evidence, you send the coppers out to find some evidence, if it can be found, that covers those points. You know, if there's something you don't prove, it's something that gives the defence the opportunity to mount an argument about that. That's the gate they'll go out through. And so you you don't want to leave a gate open like that for them to mount an argument against you? Because you won't have, you you could be criticised for not having prepared your case properly. And so you you are anticipating everything you think the defence will run and trying to close those gates. And even a bit more. And sometimes it'll happen, you'll set out to disprove something and the defence will say, no, we're not interested in that and you won't have to do it. But... You've got to be in a position to do it, Show, close those gates. When we think about defence work, I want to say we, mm. people like me who, who've never done it, we picture people cross-examination where yeah. a clever defence barrister is cross-examining a witness and is trying to break them down or create a reasonable doubt or whatever. As a prosecutor, is that as important as, in fact, your evidence-in-chief where you're laying your case out to the jury? Prosecutors don't get to cross-examine, by and large. There are no witnesses called for the defence. Very few accused give evidence. But being able to lead witnesses properly, that is, non-leading questions and, and so on, or knowing the bits that you can reasonably lead about and then not lead about, and getting the story told is very hard work. I, I now do the um, indictable crime certificates for the bar and that involves the hearing of a moot. And I'd say, what do people find hardest? Uh, that's leading evidence in chief. Because you really have to work about it, think about it, work out how you're going to link one piece of the evidence to the to the next piece of evidence. Be able to, if, if you have to, to backtrack. You know, if you get to a point and, and the witness isn't going to go where you want them to go, you might have to start the journey all over again. Does it require an encyclopedic knowledge of the rules of evidence? Oh, good, good prosecuting and good defending does require uh, a good, uh, at least a very good working knowledge of the rules of evidence. I mean, my criticism of people round uh, round the bar, people who who I'd say don't necessarily prepare their stuff properly and so on. I mean, many of them are yet to catch up with the Uniform Evidence Act, which has only been in since two thousand. Um, but, you know, they still think of it in the old the old way. Well, you've got to be prepared to learn. You've got to keep up to date. And you do that by I still read every decision in the Court of Appeal in Victoria, civil and criminal. So um, is is that a hobby, Paul? Because you are retired. <laughs> no, well, I'm not. Well, I'm still a lawyer. I'm still, oh, well, I'm still in practice, really. I'm back at the bar. Uh, but... Yeah, it's a bit of a hobby, but so when when the list of special leave applications comes out from the High Court and the results, I I go back and have a look at what the case is about. I won't I won't necessarily do that for all of them. So if there are immigration cases, I've given up on on reading the immigration cases, and I mostly don't read the family law cases. <laughs> now, Paul, that brings me to the uh, an interesting subject, which is your memory. Yeah. There's a story about you being in a case involving a man named Lowe yeah. who killed a six-year-old girl yeah. and his wife gave evidence against him yeah. and her evidence in chief went for a whole day and at the end of it, Andrew Tinney, who I assume was your junior, he was. said to you, you've never once looked at your note notes in a day of yeah. being on your feet. Well, Have you? Do you cultivate your memory? I mean, do you work on having a... A very good memory, or no, is it something I'm, that comes I'm, naturally? I'm blessed with a very good, a very good memory. I've got that sort of memory for the for the written thing, but I've also got a good memory of, of a pictorial memory in the sense that if I uh, uh, and it's a nuisance to me because I'm a collector, I will see something and and I'll see I'll, I will have seen it in a book and I'll remember having seen it. 
but then remembering where it was as <laughs> <laughs> a whole new challenge. So the reverse thing in Google now is a big help to people like me. But but I suppose I'd been she I wasn't particularly a person as a prosecutor who conferred with witnesses. Now she specifically asked to have a conference with me, you know, to know how it had all gone and so on, and I did, and we went through it in a fair amount of detail. And I I then knew what it was I wanted to give evidence evidence about and the order in which I wanted to give it. So if it works, you can be a bit lucky because if you get a witness who's quite good at the way they respond to the way that you're answering questions, that leads you on as much as it as it leads them on. Paul, I've heard um, barristers tell us that they structure their case around their closing address. They know what they're going to say yeah. in their closing address and therefore they organise their case to fit in with that. Was that your style? Did you do that? And did you have certain principles around your closing address to try to win your case? It's a bit more of, of a defence thing, uh, structuring it around the, the final address. You've just got to construct the case the way the case is and the way the, the evidence emerges. But I'm pretty sure somebody like Frank Vincent would have known almost precisely what it was he wanted to say in the final address in the running of the case. And you see that the questions he asks are directed towards to that aim. I mean, if you know your case well, you, you've got a pretty good idea in your mind of what where this is going and in the closing address or if something hasn't quite worked and the evidence hasn't emerged how you thought it might, how am I going to deal deal with that. And then you try and get it in a form that you can reduce it in the address to something that's reasonably straightforward and logical in a way that would appeal to a jury as you as you hope they'll remember it. And in, in that way you need to be a bit careful about not being too long in the in the closing address because it'll be too hard for them to keep on top of it. And there's just value in the development of themes, you know, so that the jury understand where I'm wanting to go uh, by pursuing this particular theme in the way that we we go about it. I always, I, I very often, even uh, when I was very senior, wrote out very large portions of my closing address so that I knew the words I particularly wanted to use. Now, I wouldn't read that out. When I started off as a young barrister, I tended to sort of read the address a bit. And Leo Lazarus said to me one day, no, don't do that. Judges were terrific in those days. That's another part of my education. I think judges had talked to you about, if they saw that you're really trying at your work, they'd talk to you and say, you could improve by doing this. You know, I had a case one day and Joe O'Shea called me in. The bloke got acquitted and Joe called me in. We were on circuit down at Colac and he called me into his room at the hotel and we're having a beer and he said, oh, well, you stuffed that up, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> that was encouraging. <laughs> no, no, but then because he's going on to, you know, the knife. I said, yes, I was very careful with the knife. He said, yeah, that's the problem. And he said, you should have had that in the hand of every witness and Adam waving it round and so whereas you were, you know, being very prissy about how we'd all be careful of the knife, you know, you've got exhibits, make sure you use them properly. Is that sort of encouragement, help, assistance, teaching by judges, does it still go on? I don't think so, not in the same way. It's a pity, I don't, it? Yeah, I don't think it, that sort of relationship between the bar and the bench I don't think seen in the same way. I might have done a little bit on the Supreme Court. You know, I had a case where I thought the Crown had run it in a particular way and had gone for something more than they'd ever been they'd ever be able to prove. Whereas if they'd cut their coat a bit and run it in a more confined way, they might have got a bit more of a result out of it. But I generally tried to encourage barristers, although I was pretty tough on barristers some of the time. Defence barristers in particular. <laughs> So then in 1995, Paul, you leave the bar and go to the Office of Public Prosecutions. Was that something you'd uh, intended to do or was it couldn't have done it on a whim, I guess? But So why? It's a major change in your career to yeah. work for the government. I might have always been a chance to have become a, a Crown Prosecutor, although I would have wanted to have gone at a pretty senior level. But there's a bit of crisis that developed in two ways in the, in the Office of Public Prosecutions. 
Bonge had become uh, Bonge being Mr. Justice Bongiorno to yeah, the rest of us. <laughs> yeah. Bonge was very concerned about the output of prosecutors' chambers, and he probably had pretty good reason to be. But in a way, not related to any of that, he'd got into a bit of a fight with the Premier, which caused the Premier to uh, get the attorney to introduce some tougher rules about how the office would operate. And not surprisingly, he didn't want to really be subject to those controls. Sorry, he being... Uh, uh, Bernard Bongiorno yeah, didn't Bongiorno. want to be subject to those controls. But the Criminal Bar Association got interested in how we were going to make the system work. And Jeff Flatman, Bill Morgan Parler and myself, were on the committee of the Criminal Bar Association at that stage and we we wanted to make the system work. So we offered to go down there. Jeff became the Chief Crown Prosecutor and then became the Director and and so on. I then became the Chief and later the Director and Bill was a, was a Senior Crown Prosecutor. And we did a huge number of the big cases. So instead of everything being briefed out of the office, we were doing all the big cases in the office and we were pressing the Crown prosecutors who were there who'd been the source of the problem either to go or work harder. Some of them went and we managed uh, those who remained. And that's still the case now? I think the big cases are done by Crown prosecutors within the OPP? Yeah, well, a lot of them, yes. That's the idea. And that had always been so historically. Uh, when I first started, say that's in the late 70s through to the 80s, all, all the big cases were done by people down in prosecutors' chambers. Then later, by the time Bernard became the director, nearly every case in the place was being briefed out. Yeah. So you subsequently become the director, as you said. As the director, are you an are you an advocate or are you really are you becoming an administrator, um, a manager within an office? Well, you have a solicitor for public prosecutions whose job it is essentially to run the office. You, you might have a bit of an overview of that. But, uh, for instance, in my time, I never interviewed anyone for a job working in the solicitor's branch of the office. I left that all up to other people. I would interview people if we were employing new Crown prosecutors or senior Crown prosecutors or whatever, but not even all of those. I'd be involved in some of those. But I went to court because I think it, a lot of it's leading from the front. You can't do trials. You, don't, you just don't have time to do trials. But I did big cases in the Court of Appeal and the High Court uh, and quite a lot of them. But, but I think it, it does require... You have to keep an overview of what's happening in the office, but you don't have the time to be the administrator. And very often, people like us don't have the skills. Yes. Um, it's a different skill set, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The managerial skill set's different. You've got to be able to talk to people about how it's all going and so on and, and talk through their plans and what they want to do and make sure it's all working okay, because if people in the solicitor side of it are not functioning properly, you'll have plenty of complaints to make about it. So you've got to do that, though, on a fair basis that it's, you know, been properly discussed and worked through. In your time as DPP, I think it'd be fair to say, Paul, that the highest profile cases that the office were handling were the gangland cases where there was wars within criminals within Melbourne killing each other about control of the drug trade, I think it was. There were people like Tony Mockbell and Carl Williams, infamous. Did you actually run, you wouldn't have been running trials, you? No, no, I, I, I would. What had happened was they came to see me and did a sort of chart of what they thought. So who's they? Paul? The police. Yeah. Came, the inspector who was in charge of the task force came to see me and he said, this is what we think it is, you know, and did the the plan, as it were, of where they were going. And I then appointed Bill Morgan Paler to, to run all that. Then Bill got appointed to the county court. And so I then appointed Jeff Horgan. So Jeff Horgan then ran all that early stuff. I went and appeared at the first man who pleaded guilty to one of the murders, which was going to be the breakthrough for us. I had agreed that we'd say to the Supreme Court, Bernie Teague was the judge, that he, this man should get a very, very significant reduction in penalty 
because it was such an important breakthrough in this series of 20 murders that we were, or more, that we were looking at. And, and the man had pleaded guilty, had he? When we said, oh, we, we said we'd make those representations to the judge, he agreed to plead guilty. So, um, and of course, all that was highly confidential at that stage. And we went up and did the case at Ballarat and didn't have the name in the law list and so on and did all of that. And he got a very low sentence. He was important because he was the man who was able to say, because we, there was a listening device in the car these blokes had been driving at the time of the murder. And you hear, you know that horse you told me about, it's just been scratched, right, immediately after That was code. <laughs> and that was a phone call to Carl Williams. So then he gave evidence against Carl Williams. So that was, you know, that was critically. Now, the deals we do about letting people off certain things and so that first man, Henshaw, I suppose I think we can say Henshaw now, he was probably not prosecuted for another couple of murders that we might or might not have been able to prove. But So he, there was a bit in it for him. There, there's some advantage about these types of crooks when you're dealing with them. The first one through the door will get the best deal. So he got the best deal and that was – so I had to make all those decisions. Here's a man who we've got for, for dealing uh, drugs – in a large commercial quantity, but we think we can get him to give evidence against some of those people if we let him plead to trafficking in a commercial quantity rather than a large commercial quantity. Can we do that? And I'd have to be the one who made all those decisions. Most of the time I'd agree because you'd have strong recommendations from coppers who I trusted. That might be shaken a bit now by events that followed afterwards, but certainly then I had no reason to to doubt them, uh, accept their advice and do the deal. And I'd have Horgan's advice as well and he would have gone through it, through it all and pretty thoroughly. But uh, at that time, Rob Holes had a coffee with you at some stage and said, uh, your predecessors have uh, almost unanimously been appointed to the Supreme Court, but we're like what you're doing here in this Piranha Task Force stuff and <laughs> we're not going to appoint you. Yeah. He said, don't think about it. <laughs> he said, even if I thought you should go, I don't think I could get it through Cabinet. Because it was so important. Cabinet, cabinet were confident in me being yeah, the person the, in the chair. Yeah, it was chair. so important. So how much, how longer after that were you appointed? How much oh, longer? A couple of years. A couple of years, okay. Yeah. So it went on for that. that I hadn't, time. I mean, it was funny though, even though I wouldn't have said I had any particular expectation about getting appointed. I, you'd think there was a, a reasonable chance you would be because that's what history was. But... I've never looked at life like that, I don't think. You, know, you, you don't. It's not a valuable thing to have expectations about things that might never come off if they come off well and good. But Do your best and let the consequences yeah, take yeah, care of themselves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you were appointed to the Supreme Court, you've been a part of a large team at the OPP. You've headed a large team. I'm assuming it had a collegial sort of a culture. We're all working together to achieve a, a common goal. Being a judge on the Supreme Court or any court is a more solitary thing, I think, a more individual thing. Was it a hard change to make? Yeah, it's a thing. It, it's a thing you notice most, or somebody like me notices. I had lunch down at prosecutors' chambers every day with all with all the prosecutors who cared to come into the prosecutors' library. Probably ten or twelve people every day. You'd be there. We'd do the quiz in the Age and the quiz in the in the Herald Sun. I did it in particular, apart from the fact that people were friends of mine, but. I did it in particular because I found out what's happening in the practice. I, I'm a person who loves to know what's, what's going on. You know, it had that value. Then you go on to the court and lunchtime comes and you go back to your chambers and you're sitting there on your own. I'm having the same lunch but I'm having it in totally different circumstances and you miss it. I mean, you do have, there's camaraderie with the other judges of the court and you can talk to the judges about your cases and so on. But it's not the same. It's not the same as, I mean, our whole discipline as barristers is to talk to people about our cases. You know, the Socratic methods, um, the way barristers operate, and you, and you see people who would do better if they only discuss their stuff with people. People who worry, I don't want to go and discuss it with someone because I might reveal that I'm ignorant. Well, most of the good senior people around the bar would say, well, we're all ignorant really, so... And how do we learn? We learn by talking about people. So you miss that. 
you do. And some people almost never get over it, you know, find it in, increasingly difficult, the isolation. But I got on well with the other judges around the place. And in those days, we used to try and have a group who had lunch in the judges' conference room every Thursday. And I think they're trying to get that going again. So I think that's a good thing. Because mm. that, that's a way of getting discussion across the divisions. So if you're in crime and you only speak to the criminal judges, you don't get a feel of how the, what's happening in the court. In, in being a Supreme Court judge, you did trial work and you did appellate work. Did you prefer one over the other? Is... Oh, I think I'm more a trial judge than an appellate judge. I quite like appellate work, but I think I really like trial work. Paul, with an appeal, and you, uh, you did plenty of appellate work, appeal will succeed if there's been a substantial miscarriage of justice. Yeah. And that sounds appropriate, yeah. of course. Yeah. What does the phrase mean, a substantial? Is that just a matter of judgment on the part of the judges? Oh, well, it, uh, largely, but there is a lot of case law that will determine what's a substantial miscarriage of justice. But most appeals only succeed when it's pretty clear. Um, Bill Crockett was a terrific example of it. You could have any flashpoint you felt like arguing and he would, you know, not worry about that too much. But if, if he said... By flash, no, you mean clever. Yeah, clever. And he'd say, no, this bloke didn't get a proper trial. So he, he gets a retrial. And, and that's what it boils down to, as this person at the end of the day had a fair trial. And if you entertain concern about that, then there ought to be a retrial. William and Lonsdale is brought to you by Greenslist, one of the leading multidisciplinary barristers' lists in Australia. Greenslist believe in promoting conversation around the ideas and issues that shape not only our legal system, but our wider community. At 70, you, in theory, retire, but you remain a reserve judge. Reserve judges are no different to uh, someone who's younger than 70, I understand. I mean, you, you're still doing the same work. Um, it's not as if you're sitting on the bench at a football match waiting for the coach to say, come on during halfway through the third quarter. Well, except you don't necessarily do it on the basis of working for the whole of the year. I mean, it turned out that I finished up virtually working full time. So somebody like Simon Whelan might come and work for three months and then not work for some other months and then come back and so on. Occasionally a judge will be brought back to work on a specific case that you need somebody with a, <clears throat> a particular skill set. Um, but I just sort of went back into the trial division and kept doing trial work, uh, except for the time I went off and did the bail. I did two lots of work on the Bail Act. So tell us about that. The State Government appointed you to review the Bail Act. Yeah. Why was that necessary? And what has been the outcome of your reviews? Well, Gargasulis, that's the Burke Street guy in the car, guy, yeah. was on bail. And there were questions raised about how he was on bail and how he'd run the system to ensure someone like him wasn't on bail. So I was asked to review it and I, um, I made a number of recommendations, some of which have been, oh, the majority of which I suppose have been adopted. But it's turned out that, as I had predicted, there are other things that you need to adjust, like how you manage very minor stuff, because shoplifting is an indictable offence. And once you start talking about things flowing from the commission of indictable offences, when people would think, oh, well, what do you mean? You know, you probably mean a few burglaries or something, but it might be a couple of shops. So they need to fix that up. So when you that, say fix it up, they need to have it. They need to have it so that the consequences for, for something vis-a-vis -vis bail for something like shoplifting just don't operate in the same way because you probably can't go to jail for it. A simple shoplift, it, it, you'd have to think it'd be something that got up into value of thousands of dollars before you contemplated any possibility of, uh, of somebody going to jail. I've always thought and said over a long period of time, in Victoria, you only go to jail if you really want to because you'll get plenty of opportunities of not going to jail. But but if by default you have people going to jail because of breach of bail and so on, we need to make sure we fix that up. 
And I've made some other recommendations about that, but a lot of all this has been overtaken by COVID, really. And a lot of that is based on, well, there's a, there are two problems that run together. There's the shoplifting thing, which is a particular problem, but we issue a huge amount of warrants in Victoria. When I last looked at it, more than 70,000 a year warrants, and they're all people who get arrested. Now, a lot of them then uh, either don't get bail or, you know, there'll be some delay in getting bail when I have recommended, well, you might think about having a system whereby you don't just issue as many warrants, you just just deal with people who aren't there. With that many warrants, is it having an enormous impact upon the prison system? Uh, well, not, well, they're still largely, they're still at large, but the, the number of people not on bail has its, uh, has its effect on the, on the prison system. We've had times, I don't know what the position is at the moment, where every police cell in the whole of Victoria has had a prisoner in it, hmm. or often cells designed for a couple of prisoners have got five or six prisoners in them. You know, so I think that's... That's improving a bit, but I think we can improve further. Our bail system still needs improvement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It needs, you know, if if you say, as a matter of of logic and common sense, it's bad offenders who who shouldn't have bail, but is that a shoplifter? No, it's not. And that's how, I mean, I understand the tension that there is. You've got a man running a shop and somebody steals a Mars bar and gets caught. And the police come, and their inclination would be to say, "Oh, Nick off. That's Monday. On Tuesday, the same man in the same bilk bus steals another. You, it eventually gets to a point where you've got to say, "Well, I'm going to charge you." And quite often, that leads to people being arrested. So once you're arrested, that gives rise to the question of bail. Once you're on bail, breach of bail, in the way I structured the thing, had fairly severe consequences. And, and in most cases, that's how you'd think. But if it's for something that's very minor, we need to soften that and not have those sort of people locked up. Paul, despite being in theory retired, you're actually doing important work again for the Commonwealth Government in response to the Brereton report about war crimes or possible war crimes in Afghanistan, yourself and who was Mr Justice Weinberg are looking whether charges might be laid on behalf of the Commonwealth Government. And so that's got you working at the moment. Is it something you can talk about? Oh, I can say a a little about it. Arising out of the release of the Brereton Report, the government appointed Mark Weinberg as the special investigator. Mark at that time was a reserve judge on the Court of Appeal. He took it on, there being a number of recommendations arising out of the Brereton report of people being potentially charged with war crimes. It turns out to be much more complicated than that because there are severe restrictions on how we use material that was given in evidence in the Brereton inquiry because people have the statutory right to not have that evidence or anything derived from that evidence used against them. So we've got to work all that through. Now, Mark thought because of my experience as a, as a criminal lawyer and a trial lawyer in particular, I'd be handy to have round to do some work on reviewing what insufficiencies there might be in briefs to decide whether or not we'd make recommendations that people be charged. I do work that's a bit more general than that, but that's the major part of what I'm interested in. I've, I took it on on the basis that I'd do about a week a month. It's probably got up to be a couple of weeks a month, I think, in terms of the amount of work I do. I had to leave the court anyway because I'd turned 78, which meant it's the final age of statutory senility. (laughs) You get the first one at 70 and then the final one at 78. And then Mark just made me the offer and I'm not somebody when it involves something analysing matters of criminal law that I'd ever say no to. I'd like to finish in the roughly the area of sentencing, I guess. You've identified three factors which are most often present in the lives of people who come before the criminal courts. They have either one or, or a combination of coming from a dysfunctional family, suffering from mental illness or drug abuse. Can you be compassionate towards such people? Can you be empathetic towards them in sentencing them? I mean, two of the 
glaring examples and difficult examples of uh, cases you presided over were Mohinder Singh, the man who drove the semi-trailer into the police officers on the Eastern Freeway and killed four of them, uh, who was drug-affected at the time and I think might have been suffering from mental illness problems as well. A terrible case of a man named Arthur Freeman who threw his four-year-old daughter over Westgate Bridge and clearly had mental illness. How do you weigh these things up? Obviously, there needs to be some degree of punishment. There needs to be protection of the community. But as a fellow human being, we see these people uh, who maybe didn't have much control over what they were doing. Is it a difficult thing for judges in that situation, for you particularly? Well, I guess it's difficult and some judges find the process of sentencing the most difficult thing of the lot. And that fits back into, you know, they won't have been the person who's decided guilt or non-guilt. The jury have decided mm. that. So, mm. But the, ju- the judge has to decide it. But the law in sentencing, I think it goes something like this. We started off and we had the Penalties and Sentences Act in something like 1987, and that's a tiny little that's probably 70 or 80 pages. That gets up to about 100 pages when we bring community-based orders in. Now, the, pre- the present Sentencing Act, I suspect, is getting up to close to 1,000 pages. Perhaps not that high, but, you know, a lot. So we try to... We had the simple view that judges subject to a few rules that there were would, by a process of intuitive synthesis, come to form the sentence... The problem about that is you, people might think, well, intuitive senses, what's that mean, the first figure you think of? And that mightn't be an unfair, a totally unfair criticism. So you've got to work it, you work it out. But governments have responded by placing more and more restraints on how, the, how sentences work, largely directed towards sentences being higher because government thinks that's what the community want. You know, that is whatever your understanding of what the community, what community wants. Because I find when you talk to people about it, I've done so from time to time, go to the odd Rotary Club and so on or the odd parish or somewhere, and you talk to people about it and, and you give them an example of a case. I think they genuinely understand how difficult it is that there are so many things pulling in different directions. But so if you get an Arthur Freeman, you try and have some understanding of it, but it's terribly difficult. You know, almost heartbreaking when you know that the little boy in the car has said when he's throwing her over, but she can't swim. Um, that gets to you. But you've got to do it in a, in a disciplined way. Although it's now surrounded by a huge amount of case law and so on, it's not much more than you've got to sentence whole people. You've got to try and understand the whole of their lives. And you would think somebody who's had a shocking background, and many of the people we see, particularly when we get to the top end of things like murders, have had terrible backgrounds. Well, you've got to somehow take that into account. They, They presumably don't get as big a sentence as somebody who's had a perfectly normal background. But I must say people free of the three factors that you've discussed are becoming rarer and rarer. And it's drug addiction and, and the influence of drugs is a very difficult one because that's, that's self-inflicted. That's not, you know, you understand somebody's background, they've got no choice about it. But then often with people with drug addiction, that comes out of the sort of background that they've had as well. But So someone like Mohinder Singh driving that semi-trailer on the Eastern Freeway, he's taken drugs himself. Yeah. Is there any consideration given there or is, is it horrendous crime he's going to get his maximum? I didn't. No, he's not going to get the maximum. Uh, in fact, the sentence that I gave him was reduced for a a uh, reason not to do with how I dealt with the case, but I didn't give him much for his drug taking. In fact, the taking of drugs in the circumstances was no excuse at all. But he did have some difficult mental problems, which you've got to take into account. For him, probably the plea of guilty was the the biggest thing. Mm. He doesn't, even though you've got to take account of each victim, he probably doesn't get as much for killing four people as you would ordinarily expect because it's his act. It's one act. As one, yeah. as one act. Yeah. So you, um, you have to deal with that. But you, 
you apply, I think, well, you apply what you know about the law. As you get older, you apply a bit about what you know about people and behaviour and then just do your best at the end of the day. So that if I walked into a room with Mark Weinberg and I said, I'm minded to give this bloke for manslaughter 10 with an 8. I should say for those not in the criminal law world, it's a maximum of 10 and 8 years with good behaviour. For a non-parole period, Non-parole. Then he might say, well, I'd give him 11 with a 9. And what we'd say at the end of the day about that, we're actually speaking about the same figure. These things are not judged, can't ever be judged to that sort of nicety. And that's sometimes hard to explain. So that's why the appeal test is that the sentence has to be manifestly excessive. It isn't that the appeal court would have imposed some other sentence, even a higher sentence. It is that this sentence is manifestly excessive or rather in that case impose a lower sentence. And sometimes you think that, oh, I probably wouldn't have given this bloke, you're sitting on the appeal, I probably wouldn't have given him quite that much. But, yes, it was open to the judge to do what the, the judge did. What the community don't necessarily understand because it's not explained to them, they, they don't have the full circumstances of the offending and they rarely, if ever, have the full circumstances of the person. But... For all, you know, the hoo-ha and so on, the Herald Sun in particular creates, there are a lot of people who seem to reasonably uh, accept that the legal system does its best. Paul, having a long career, 50 years plus, where you're exposed, vicariously I guess, to these horrendous crimes, does it affect you? Does it affect other judges, barristers, solicitors, long-term practitioners in the field? Or is it something which you can learn not to be affected by? I don't know whether it's learning or not, but some people, and I'm one of them, are blessed by an ability to, the way I describe it, is shut the door of your chambers and you go home at night free from it and not worrying about it. That that doesn't mean there's not the odd night you wake up at four o'clock in the morning and think, God, what do I do that for? But I've been very lucky in that I haven't had that sort of concerned, but I do see other judges who are affected by it who, you know, it really wears them down. I mean, perhaps not so much now, but in the old days, alcohol was a huge problem at the at the bar because the, the self-medication for the stress was, you know, we're going to have a few beers at the end of the day. And some of them became alcoholic and some of them are not have not survived as a result of that. You have to work out somehow an ability to say, it's not me personally who's, I'm doing this because I'm a person chosen by the community to do it. I'm doing it on behalf of the community at large. And I'm doing important community work. Yeah, and we share, and therefore we, the whole community, share the responsibility for the work that I'm doing. It's just, in a way, never struck me that I should be more worried about it or that there was any possibility I should inflict it on my family. I don't think the family ever would have known much about exactly what I was up to at any given time because I never talked about my work at home. I did a bit with Anne because she was down at the tribunal and she'd talk a bit about her cases so we could safely have conversations with one another from positions of complete ignorance. So, As one of your children has followed you down the same path, I don't think you can have inflicted upon them. I think you can be confident you didn't. And she's obviously making a great success of it too. Yeah, and I don't think I don't think we would have ever suggested that that's what people should do. You think when Georgina went to apply for articles at Cause and Anne had done articles at Cause, had been articled to Barry O'Callaghan, uh, somebody on the uh, on the interviewing panel said to her, "Oh, your parents are in the law," and she said, "Yes, Dad's." The, Director of Public Prosecution and uh, Mum's the Deputy President at VCAT. I suppose it does have something in it, but uh, the genes there somewhere, but not because we ever you know, directed her in that way. Or And it's quite often, well, families go in different ways. I mean, some families, the children go down that professional path. In others, they've learnt the lesson and go elsewhere. That's the Paul, thank you very much for coming in this morning and provide us with such interesting and important insights into your life in the law. We're very grateful. You're welcome.
notes from today's episode can be found at greenslist.com.au forward slash podcast. There you'll find links to things we've talked about in this episode, a transcript of the show and some wonderful photos of our guests. If you're enjoying Lives in the Law, please tell your networks, subscribe, rate and review the show. Your host is former lawyer and Greens List clerk, Michael Green. Our show is produced and edited by me, Catherine Green, mixed and mastered by Windmill Audio and recorded by Alex McFarlane, who also wrote and performed all the music for the series. We're coming to you from the iconic Owen Dixon Chambers on the corner of William and Lonsdale Streets in our beautiful city of Melbourne. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of this land and pay our respect to their elders past and present. There is no doubt that conversations about justice have been taking place on this land for thousands of years, and we are privileged to continue that discussion here today.